Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Well, good evening. I would like to welcome to welcome you to the Stop Child Abuse Now talk radio show sponsored by NASCA, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. Tonight is Monday, March 27, 2023. This is scan number 3,146. My name is Penelope Bennett, and I am from Sarasota, Florida. I am um, on tonight with the lovely... Kim Lakin, uh, my co-host. She is from Colorado. Um, we are both adult survivors of child abuse, and we welcome you to the show tonight. We have a very special show this evening. Tonight, the type of show we have is a special guest night uh, where a special guest comes on and tells and shares their story um, with us. Our special guest, her name is Jody Tedder. I hope, Jody, that I'm pronouncing her. She's from Helena, Montana. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Jody in a few moments. She provided us with a really nice uh, biography um, of her story. But before I tell you a little bit more about Jody, I wanted to talk with you about NASCA and NASCA's mission because, as you know, NASCA is all about child abuse prevention, intervention, and recovery. We have a single purpose at NASCA. It's to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. The first goal, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, abbreviated CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone. The second goal, offering hope and healing through numerous paths providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. You can get involved with NASCA tonight by joining the panel and supporting Jody, our special guest, as she uh, shares her story with us. The number to call to be a part of the panel is area code 646-595-2118. Again, the number to call in and be on the panel for the show tonight is area code 646-595-2118. And my co-host, Kim, will greet you on our back line and welcome you into the show. 
and I see a growing panel of support uh, building right now for Jody. So let me tell you a little bit more about our special guest, Jody Tedder from Helena, Montana. She is a child abuse survivor and author of the book entitled A Prisoner by No Crime of My Own. She triumphs over a hellish childhood through years of intensive therapy. She walks us through her pursuit of justice for her mother, who she watched being killed by her father in a CD hotel room in 1968. A true-born sociopath, he strolled undetected using religion as his disguise. Her family coat of arms was incest. The murdered woman's spirit seemed to ignite a search for answers in Jody's childhood, but the family would do everything to keep the secrets they helped conceal. Decades were spent chasing down leads through a private investigator, coordinating with police and confronting perps. Hospital records ultimately point the identity of the victim and a sister's loving pursuit to find her missing sibling helps spur the investigation. They may have solved the case. The problem was that the cops needed a confession or a body. No help would be found in family. Her face sustained her as she moved toward the dragons from her youth. The terror reliving the Incessant sexual abuse stalled her attempts as her body recalled the misery. Others tried to block her efforts with rejection and judgment. Millions suffer for crimes they did not commit. Would this victim find justice? Would peace ever live in her world again? This story is a courageous dedication to all children who have lived through childhood violence and deviance. It's all murder. Unrelenting guilt to bring this woman justice would open doors to the past that could not be closed. Her life mattered and so did her death. Her murder left a destiny to locate the truth and get the chance to bring healing and justice to cold crimes lost to time. Jody, I thank you so very, very much. And um, without further ado, I'm going to unmute your mic, Jody, and I'm going to welcome you to the show. Welcome, Jody. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Yeah, thank you so much. So I know you want um, me to... that my... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I know that my co-host, um, Kim, greeted you on our back line before the show kicked off, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, the minutes go by quickly, and then the music goes on, and I need to be at the ready. Um, so this is the first time that we're speaking, um, but um, as Kim may have um, uh, let you know, we, we like to, on special guest nights, just sort of start... Um, chronologically through one's life um, and we kind of use the timeline as the way we work through the 90 minutes of the show so if it would be okay if you could just give us a little you know background um, we we break up things into segments so after about 20 minutes I'll I'll break and we'll go to the panel um, but if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us into the beginning of your life, into, you know, your infancy and your first memories and talk to us about your childhood, uh, who was in your family and, and just kind of help draw a picture, paint a picture for us so that we can understand your environment and we can, that we can move through your life chronologically if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the one thing I'd like to just um, say is there was just one mistake in that thing that it was the, the murdered woman was not my mother, actually. It was an unknown woman who we met. But hopefully, I'll go ahead and start. I, I know that most people tell their stories, you know, more like 10 or 11 or 12. But for me, my childhood is best seen for me starting around age three or four. So that works for me very well. Um, I remember okay. it, you know, much like it was yesterday. So do you want me to go ahead and go? Please and do. And, and before, yes, please do. And I want to let you know that this is, you know, this is your show. So, you know, you share what you're comfortable with. You start where you wish. And, you know, when I break to, to you know, go to the panel and they have an opportunity to ask you questions, even a question that I ask or my co-host Kim asks, if you are not comfortable um, you're totally in control. So you can decline a question or move on. So it's, it's totally up to you. I just want to let you know that this is a safe space for okay. you. Yep, thank you so much. I, I'm pretty open. I've talked about it a lot. Um, so, But I very much appreciate you sharing that. So I'll go ahead and start. We, we lived in Vancouver, Washington. Um, we lived on this little street called Delaware Lane, you know, I loved that it. it was sidewalks and kids. The ice cream man was there. My brother was my best friend in those days. We played outside as often as we could. He was just about a year and a half or two years older than I was. I had two older sisters um, that we weren't that close. There, there was five years between all of us. My mom worked uh, full time in those days. My dad did not work very much, unfortunately. His best friend was Craig, and Craig worked at a local plant that had shifts like days and graveyard and swing shift. And the reason I bring that up is this allowed him a lot of time at our house uh, during the day when my mother wasn't there. So during the days, my father was a raging pedophile, and he shared us kids with Craig in the way that I guess buddies share beer. It was... um, a time that seemed that their bond just really ignited watching them together as they abused us. And I can say that I honestly don't remember Craig abusing me, but I fully remember watching him abuse my sister and my brother. So they kind of abused together. Um, I was the youngest, so I think Dad kept me uh, for his own abuse while Craig kind of picked on one of the other children. Um, I remember I I went to see Craig years later about the murder and he told me that he really loved my sister Jamie and, you know, pedophiles have this way of always thinking it's love, even though we all know that it's the farthest thing from it. So anyway, um, though my mom worked most of the time, I do have some recollections in those early years and later through my life when she joined into the kind of pedophile ring that we had in our house. And I say that just the three of them, not others, but just the three of them. Um, These were obviously devastating memories for me to walk through. I guess I could stand that my dad and Craig were abusing us and weren't safe. But when my mother entered the scene, um, I have to tell you, it's quite overwhelming when you know that nobody is in your little world to protect you. And as a little girl, I, I was very aware that nobody was there to keep us safe. Um, My dad went out in the evenings and drank a lot. He always drank. He kind of drank day and night, and sometimes he'd leave. My mom would throw a fit when he came home, but it never stopped him. There was this certain Saturday. um, They must have been 
on one of these rages. They raged all the time. But uh, this particularly Saturday morning, my father threw me in the car and I had to go with him. So he took me on a short ride from our house um, to a place I'd never been. I can tell you now that that was an old motel off a deserted highway. Uh, the river, it was called the Riverside. The year was 1968. When we get there, I, I meet this really nice lady. She's pretty. She's kind. She has this kind of flowing hair that's kind of shoulder length. She had on a white blouse and a skirt, and I could tell that she'd stayed the night there. Like, she just didn't seem like she was completely put together. And it was kind of early in the morning, I think, um, probably 10 or 11 or something. I mean, it seems like it was after breakfast time. Uh, Dad didn't like that we were talking without him being there, so he walked up to me quickly and took me by the hand and walked me quickly down the sidewalk. I can remember my toes barely touching the pavement as we walked. And he opened the door to this room, and I'd never been to a motel in my little world. I was only three. And I remember that he spanked me and and put me in this room and told me to be quiet and shut the door. And I'd never been inside a motel room before, so I just thought it looked like a bedroom. But I was really scared, and I kind of scoured the room. And, of course, being a child that had lived through just rape and drunkenness and just tons of bad parenting, essentially. I was just, I was always on guard. And so I just remember really looking at the room, trying to find the safest place that I could stay. So the safest place to me was pegged up against a wall. And I can remember the feeling of that wall on my back as I just tried to stay, you know, kind of out of harm's way. A little bit later, my dad and Craig walked through the door and they're with this blonde lady that we had just met. Well, that I had just met anyway. And there was booze on a small table in the room. So, you know, I knew what partying was because mom and dad threw parties all the time. So I felt a little bit easier that they were just going to be getting drunk together. Like that was kind of normal in my little world. So I was kind of happy about that. They all seemed to be kind of happy. When they came in, the lady came over to me and sat down, which would be a significant thing later in life, but I wouldn't know this. But she sits down and opens her purse and lets me play in her purse. And, you know, the days are it's just kind of going along and I think everything's fine. But then something kind of started to happen. The room, it always felt like the air was getting sucked out when my dad would start kind of doing his pacing thing. And I knew to be careful because I knew something was going to happen. And right about that time, or, you know, I don't know how long it was, but um, my father threw this woman down on her bed, stomach down. And with his free hand, he lifted up her skirt and raped her. When the rape was over, and I knew what rape was, so I knew what was going on, uh, she flew up on the bed and just started screaming at him. And I, I can't tell you any words that she said, but I can certainly tell you that I know she was telling him he was going to be in trouble. And many of us, if, if you know, we've gone through memories and stuff in life, we realize it's not like this big, long video. So the next thing that I remember is that she's standing in front of Craig, in front of the nightstand by the side of the bed, And he's now holding her arms down, uh, kind of just in a, I'm going to take control of the situation thing, and she's just kind of pegged there. Um, My dad always wore, I hope this doesn't bother anybody, I never know, but if we're on this kind of a show, I think it's fine. But he used to always wear a, a knife on his belt in those days. He was a hillbilly from the south, and that was just how it was. And now this knife is in his hand, and he uh, just slits her throat. Her head kind of goes forward, and they lay her down. 
I can remember her uh, feet that didn't were bare coming extending from the end of the bed. Without going into a lot of detail, just for my own sake, um, I try to spare myself that if I can. They end up wrapping her up in a bedspread and opening the door. The car has now been turned around and the trunk is open and they put her in the back of the car. Um, I was so little that I remember it was very difficult to get in the car when Dad asked me to get in the back seat. And I was terrified because this lady, I didn't know what Dad was yet, that I always thought she was going to reach through the trunk and get me. At that time, my parents um, had just recently purchased 40 acres, about 20 miles out of town, and their house wasn't built yet, but this is exactly where Dad drove us, and we buried her body there. I got in a big sinkhole thing. Um, There was a lot of sinkholes on my parents' property, and it took us kind of all day and all night to do this. I got to stay in the car. I just watched, but... um, just to kind of move that story forward, we moved out of that house on Delaware Lane on my fourth birthday. So this murder happened in June 1968, and I turned four the following month. So the sinkhole on that property where the body was buried, um, when we did end up finishing our house and moving up there, my father used that as a landfill, throwing kind of freezers and just household garbage in it for the next 20 years until that hole was filled. And when that hole was filled... We got garbage service. So the murder was never talked about, and my father indeed got away with murder. Um, And I'll go into a little bit about that in a minute here. But through those years, um, my parents found this kind of weird religion, and Dad tried to quit drinking. Uh, None of it helped, and they didn't change. Um, I was still raped into my teen years, and unfortunately, my mother participated, not always, but just a few times. Uh, people don't like to talk about mother abuse, but I think it's more common than we all like to believe. Um, I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. Um, I finally got married about 18 and moved out. Um, I really didn't care who I was married to. I just needed to get the, uh, out of that house. I had two beautiful children, um, but the marriage was horrible. I stayed in that horrible marriage for about another 17 years. And I had just begun seeking professional help at the end of that marriage. I think bad marriages just keep us locked in these prisons where we don't even look outside of it. It's always just all of our fault. Anyway, so throughout my teen life and my adult life, I had some significant memories that stayed with me. And I like to share this part because people always ask me, what, did all of a sudden you just remember everything? (laughs) And that's not how it works. If, if our life isn't speaking these things constantly to us, we should maybe be thinking about these memories. But I think as trauma survivors, likely our, our story has been trying to come out of us throughout our life. I can remember a time, you know, I was probably seven or eight when these dreams started, and they lasted my entire teen life. It was the same dream. It never changed. Um, I would be in my parents' downstairs in the living room looking up to where my bedroom was, and there was just a wall there. You couldn't see into it, but in this dream, there was a window there. But my bedroom wasn't a bedroom. It was an office, and there was no bed in there. There was just an office desk, and there was a blonde lady standing in front of the desk, kind of like a Perry Mason. It looked like Perry Mason kind of in Dallas Street or whatever, and My dad was behind her, and the dream would end with my father shoving her head down and beginning to lift up her skirt. So all of my life I had these weird things that happened, but I never put that together with, 
like I knew when I grew up that um, Dad and Craig always did something in a motel room. I thought probably they had just raped us or done some of their craziness. But I, it always bothered me that I had this vacant thing. I knew something happened to a, in a hotel room, but I didn't have the memory. Like the, the, another example is when I got with my um, ex-husband the first time he took me to a motel room to stay the night. We'd gone to dinner. We, we pull up to the motel. He goes in and gets keys, and my legs start hurting. All of my childhood, I had debilitating leg pain, so debilitating that I couldn't sleep through the night. I'd get up. I'd run a bath. I'd do all these crazy things because it was just so severe. So I kind of knew, like, what is, what's happening here? So we went to dinner. We stop at the store. We get bubble bath and champagne, and by the time we go back, I literally could not walk. I, we opened the door. I'd only known this guy a couple months, and I just said, my legs aren't working. It was the very first time I'd ever been back to a motel room since the murder. So, you know, all of us as trauma victims, when we listen to our story, for me, trauma stays with us, and my strongest memories have been my body memories. They're the very things that you can't deny. We love to deny what our mind brings back to us because um, it's just a – human force that we have. We want to make the story better. We want to believe things. But body memories, these kinds of things were just certainties of what my life was always trying to tell me. So after I left my marriage of 17 years, that's when I really jumped into counseling. I'm now 58. I was 35 at the time. That's a lot of years of healing. I was broken, I thought, beyond repair by the time I left that marriage. I had scars on my body. My children were horribly abused. So when I left, I had these two teenagers that were also broken, and that's always a hard thing, even though they're raised and they're doing good now. But uh, things started to change then. It was a lot of work, um, but I, you know, I had a full-time job. I was a working mother, but I still went to counseling and I did the work. I drank too much. I went out too much, but I still did the work. I wasn't the best mother, but I still did the work. It's the most important thing, no matter how many times. You have to just keep doing the work. It doesn't matter if you fall off or you stop. I Sometimes I'd quit counseling for a year because they'd say something horrible like, go to your mom, she hated you. And I was like, oh, I, I can't. And I'd leave for a year before I'd ever go back. But I never quit. So for twenty, a good 20 years, actually, I had one counselor fire me because she said, your guy issues are way too huge for me. I need you to go back to the guy that trained me. And he was the one that really, for the next 15 years, really took me into the best places I've ever been into my life. Um, the way the murder finally came back was uh, this one day we've been working on this, and I told them, we all know these blank spots in our being, and I, I told this lady I was seeing, Margaret, that I just, I have this memory, and I can't be in hotel rooms. Like when I would go with my children when they were small, I'd be up all night pacing, and it was horrible, but I didn't know why. And so she was working with me. And this one day I came home in the middle. I don't know. I'd been in counseling three or four years at this point, maybe. And I just felt like I was going batshit crazy, quite honestly. And I called her and I said, just send the men over in white jackets. I can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm losing my mind. And she said, Jody, you know what? I want you to go into a room, separate yourself, go to a quiet place. And just shut the door and be still for a minute. And she stayed on the phone with me. And she said, I want you to look at an object in your room and make no judgments about it. Just tell me what you see. So I picked this fan in my room. And I can remember telling her, okay, it's a fan. There's blades. 
I remember talking about the screws and just about the same time, it was almost like right next to the fan, my mind just played out the entire murder. And I said, oh, my God, they murdered a woman in this room. So it's, you know, people ask me, I've never been hypnotized. I've never done anything. You do the hard work of when one story comes, then when one memory comes, you complete it. When another memory comes, you complete it. So crazy enough, I I knew I, I waited my whole life to see in that room. I got up and I called the sheriff. Actually, that as soon as I got off the phone with her, I called and turned that in. And that seems like a crazy thing, but when you see it, it's so... You know, like there's tons of books, Healing and Trauma, Body Keeps the Score. I've read every single one of them and about 100 more. And they'll tell you that these memories are encapsulated in a different part of your mind, and they come back with a vividness that you know is real. It's, it's undeniably so. So I started talking to my mom and family, people who would listen. My mom didn't seem surprised, which actually was no surprise at all because there's probably nothing my dad did that she didn't know about because she was that kind of lady. She was always with him. Um, she did tell me there was a time when I was small that, that uh, me and dad and Craig had been up at the property working late one night. And she said, I remember it because your father, my dad was a diabetic and he was a heavy drinker. She said he ended up in the hospital for almost a week. So she said, if you find those hospital records, which I'm sure in 2008, she thought I would not get to in 1968. So again, helping, but probably not really thinking I'm going to get it. She says, you'll have the date of your murder. So believe it or not, it takes me a year for my dad to sign the release papers. He finally does. I take it to the hospital. The hospital calls me and says, oh, my gosh, I've got your microfish. You can come in and get it. So I go in. It's like a Tuesday or something. I walk in and I hand her, I, I tell her my name, and this lady disappears in the back, and this other lady comes out, and she hands me this white envelope that has my name on it. And... I'll never forget it. It's, it's so strong. She held it and said, I don't know what you're looking for, but I hope you find it because this was in a box that was marked to be destroyed next week. So anyway, I got the date of the murder. I went down to the library, and the date was June 6, 1968. And so I eventually hire a PI with my own money to help me. I ride the cold case cowboys because I've never done this. I don't know what I'm doing. This was way before all the cold case stuff started coming out. Anyway, the cold case cowboys tell me that what happens is people only look in their area and this is why you don't find people. So they tell me to cast my net broader, which I do, and I find one date of a woman that's blonde because, of course, I know what she looks like. She's blonde and little, so she's got to match that. And I find a lady who went missing in a Saturday on July in 1968. So anyway, long story short, I do have the police. They open a case. They work on it for four years. Um, when my dad dies, unfortunately, so does this cold case. Um, it's a 50-year-old homicide cold case, right? And so people don't want to throw money at it. They don't want to believe a three-year-old memory on and on and on, um, even though they found me credible and all of these things. So I'm still working on that, as a matter of fact. I hope before I die that um, I can return her to her family. Um, just to kind of close up here, I no longer have contact with my family that I was born into. It just doesn't work um, when people don't want to stay with the truth and move into healing. And as a matter of fact, my mother and sister worked against me in the murder investigation, even though I know my mother knows it's true. There's some crazy things that have happened after that that kind of point to that. But they told the detective that I had mental health issues, you know, the old, your nuts are sluts theory. 
Um, I don't have mental health issues, but they helped my father with a lie detector test. And then last year, of course, years later, uh, we take my mom to breakfast and she tells me that dad said he took so many drugs, anybody could have passed it. But it does seem like many times abusers are better at telling their story than most of us are. So anyway, healing is a lot of work. Um, I have a very strong faith. I have a great husband. I have beautiful kids that are doing well, and I have five grandkids now. So I continue on today in my work and advocacy. But I'll go ahead and stop here so that you guys, (laughs) if you have any questions about all that, you're certainly welcome to ask me what you would like to. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for just, um, opening yourself up and telling us, you know, about story, and um, I, I didn't, I didn't stop you, um, I, you know, because I think it's important, you know, once you start um, relaying and, and going back there to finish the process, and and I also want to thank you because I know that's a sacrifice. You know, every time we tell our story, we relive it in a certain way, and um, but just speaking the truth um, and and sharing your experience helps so much so many of us, um, that there's, there's also, you know, there's a sacrifice, but there's also a gift there. And so, Jody, so many times when you were, you know, you were speaking, I was just kind of nodding my head. The body does keep the score. You know, the mind can, may not remember um, or may repress certain memories or delay uh, recalling certain memories, but the body, you know, the body screams the truth. And I was just nodding my head because I can completely relate to that. Um, you know, we, you brought up so many other things, you know, about um, siblings witnessing abuse, siblings being abused, watching a sibling, you know, being abused. Um, these are profound, profound traumas on children. Um, uh, so, and so many layers of them you described. Um, also, um, and I'm losing my train of thought here because sometimes I still dissociate, you know, when I, when I think about these things, because um, I was nodding as I could relate to a lot of your story, we do not talk about the betrayal of mothers or the betrayal of parents, um, but we, sh- we need to open up the dialogue more um, because uh, failing to protect a child, um, witnessing um, abuse, um, when a parent witnesses another parent um, abusing um, or obviously participating in, in said abuse is pretty, uh, pretty obvious. Um, uh, crime by a parent, but also just the betrayal of, of witnessing and not protecting like your mother did um, in addition to participating. I mean, these are things that are very, very, they're not talked about as often as they should be, and I agree with you. Um, they need to be. It's a profound wound um, when, uh, when a child is neglected by their parent, by, their, by a parent that should be intervening. Um, and um, the trail is, is, is very, very painful. So you brought that up, and I, you know, I thank you for that. Um, the fact that you um, talked about you know, your healing journey, I want to get more into that after I, I break to the panel, but, um, but I just want to thank you because you brought up so many things or topics that we discussed um, within NASCA, um, and there, there are themes that come up um, on, the, on these shows, um, and um, and by you bringing them up, you know, gives us an opportunity to, to expand on them and discuss them. So um, before I bring Kim on, as an aside, Jody, um, I have three sons. And one of my sons went to Carroll College in Helena, Montana for a year. And so I spent some time there. Oh, and I can awesome. tell you that I think it's, oh, it's, I think it's beautiful. 
It's a beautiful, it is breathtaking here. We have only been here a year and a half, and I did not believe by relocating how much my trauma would go home, but it's really beautiful here. We live about 20 miles out of Helena, and so we're in the mountains, and it's very peaceful, and I didn't realize that that would really bring a healing that I didn't know would be. You know, I'm always that, we always just want to, you know, toughen up and we can do it. And I'm so thankful I am not white knuckling it here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can, I can totally relate to that. And having been, you know, in Helena, Montana and in the surrounding areas, I'm spending quite a bit of time there. Well, my son was there. It really is just a majestic place. It's really hard to describe unless you go see it. But it, you know, it really, truly is. It's like an, I can sort of envision. Yeah, I use that are. word for it myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, Kim, I wanted to invite you into the conversation with Jody. Hey, thank you, Penelope. Hi, Jody. Hello. Hello. No. Thank you so much for all that you've shared. Um, I'm just so sorry you have to go through all of that. I know, as you know, Penelope said, we're we're kind of that's what we do here, but it is heartbreaking. You know, every time you hear that story again of another child that was being abused, and um, and I can relate a lot to a lot of things that you said. My my faith is a huge part. I think that my mom had. You know, even though she enabled my abuser, um, she had the, the wherewithal to send me to church. And I am so thankful for that because I think that that is what helped me get through all of my childhood abuse as well. Um, so, you know, that's always nice to hear. <laughs> yes, um, I, don't I really agree. I don't have any yeah yeah I mean you do a lot of times it's you hear that people that don't have something to follow it's it's harder to to get through all of that and um and know that there is hope on the other side well I think that's true and the the other thing that I've found because I talk to a lot of survivors I you know I do my own stuff to try to give back and there's this theme always of these pedophiles hiding behind religion. And so unfortunately that takes faith, faith and religion are two different things to me. Right. And my dad had Bible study sure. in his house while he was raping us in the back room. So I think that that also leaves this gaping wound when it comes to God, right? Like how do I figure this out? Because so many of them do hide behind that kind of cloak of religion. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that has always broken my heart because that was my safe place. I was able to be sent to church and, you know, that was my sanctuary. And, um, but you're right. So many people do. I can learn that. Um, I, I can relate a lot to also your grandchildren. My daughter just had our sixth grandchild. So it's so exciting. Oh, congratulations. The best yeah. time. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You too. They are so much fun, aren't they? <laughs> are they in the same state as you? No, I just left Washington, and they're all back in Washington. I hope oh. that I can have some of them here and join me in Montana someday. But, you know, the goal is um, I think when you talk about healing and the work that it really does take, like when I 
published my book, my counselor of over 15 years, he just said, Jody, you did the work. And it takes a lot of work, but looking at your children and your grandchildren, you want a different destiny for them. And you, and it takes a lot of work for somebody to stand up and say, you're not going to have a grandma, you're not going to have an uncle, you're not going to have a cousin, but we're going to go forward and we're going to do this thing new. And that's a lot. It's a lot on your family as well. But our tables start to be fuller <laughs> with every birth. And so, you know, you go forward yeah. with that great reward of bringing joy, you know, to generations beyond. I hope my memory stays alive in my family for generations. I'm sure it will. I, I can just imagine. So thank you for, for that. And I just look forward to hearing more of your stories. Thanks, Kim. And, you know, Jody, he, you say things with such confidence, and you're just you seem, you're just such a strong person. And but it it takes so much fortitude with what you just said. And I know I don't want to speak right. for Kim. Kim and I have discussed this as well. And that you know when you take a stand and you're willing to break the silence and talk about abuse and sexual abuse in a family, um, there are oftentimes and a majority of the time stand alone. And it's so true. Yeah. And you have to have the resolve and you do. And, you know, you said it um, with such, you know, strength and confidence that, um, that you're, you're paving, you know, a new path, um, a new way forward. And oftentimes, and unfortunately, most of the time we do it alone and it hurts and it's painful, especially when those that are, trying to block your way are the only other ones that know the truth as well. Um, so you have to be strong. Yeah, you have to be strong um, when you stand alone and you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and it's really hard, and I have so much respect for you. Thank you. It's true. It is not for this. <laughs> you know, you. I, I was just talking to my daughter um, yesterday or this morning, I can't remember now, but we were chatting about just that, the, the inner fortitude that it takes to, and you, you don't always stand there, right? Like I'm 58 now, and so it's been a really long, I mean, for the last 20, 25 years, I haven't dedicated wholly to it because you have to step in and out of healing or because you have to live, you have to have wine and good food or you're never going to make it out. And it takes a long time, right? And the memories, will they, mm-hmm. I remember asking my counselor once, Redmond, will there ever be a time where I won't, you know, have a trigger? And he just looked at me and said, Jody, I can't tell you at 80 that you won't remember something or have a trigger around something. So you have a different understanding and reality going forward. My life will never look like the next person. I don't get to watch shows. Like, everybody loves all of these, like, everything's murder and mayhem and blood. And I'll be triggered where it's horrifying. I feel like I'm going to lose my mind mm-hmm. because – and everybody's throats are being slit on these shows. And I just can't do that. And I even asked him, will there be a time when I can? Because it's embarrassing when your family's enjoying this horrible show, you know, and you want to be there. And I can't because I'll get stuck somewhere for some minutes mm-hmm. or an hour or maybe overnight. And so you mm-hmm. have to have that inner fortitude to say it's always going to feel a little bit different for me. And that's yeah. not something we really want to say, is it? Don't We always want to say you know what, after next year, I'm going to be great. <laughs> not, yeah. And I am good most of the time, but I don't know when sometimes I'm not going to be. So I think that's 
such a great attitude, and that's something that I finally, you know, resolved, you know, in my own mind as well, is that if I kept hoping that through the hard work that I was doing that one day there would be an end point, you know, and then not reaching that end point, that that was actually self-abusive behavior in and of itself because I was setting myself up for failure because, you know what, I can't control my triggers. I can manage them, but I cannot right. control them. And I, if I hope to control them and put an end to them, that's my end game, and I keep hoping for that and failing, you know, I'm setting myself up to hurt myself. So, you know, I think I like your attitude, and, and that's the conclusion I came to as well. It's, it's just part of the journey, and it may always be part of the journey. Um, instead of fighting it, you just have to accept it and learn to manage it and, you know, and practice self-care along the way. Right, the best we can, right? <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Self-care is a beautiful thing, but sometimes, you know what, you just want popcorn and ice cream or whatever, you know, six margaritas, whatever it is for for us. And I also think that bringing grace along with that, even when we fail or we don't make it the way, because it's really important to those of us that work hard at healing. We want it to look so good and we want to be so perfect. And then we fail, and I think it's super important to bring grace in those areas and teach our family mm-hmm. to have grace for us when we fail as well. Exactly, exactly. But if we're not failing, that means also, like, I'm like, well, that means I'm still trying, though, even if I experience failures, you know, at least I'm still it's in the so game. It's so true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. Yeah. Healing is messy, isn't it? It's just a mess. Um, it's very messy, but you know what? What uh, a person! I always I like to liken it to two people in kindergarten. I've, I I knew this one person who was a rocket scientist. Really, he was a nuclear physicist, and he did all these things. And he said every kid in kindergarten has exactly the same position that I had. And I just said I take I take a real problem with that because I had to dig out about four hundred feet of garbage before I could even get to school that morning. And I don't even know what happened in my house before I got there. And my hair certainly wasn't brushed. So no, you and I did not have the same experience or the same wherewithal. So for where we all get, it's a very different thing. It took us 20 times the volume of what it took a person who came from good. And so we're badasses. There's no other way to say it. And I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. (laughs) But, you know, you have to look at it like that, that it's, it's, it takes us much, much more to get to the same place that they've gotten. So for us that, you know, I just stepped down from a director role in a big law firm. That was huge. I only had a high school degree. I showed up very smart. That was huge. But it was also the resilience and tenacity that I've had to build in my life to survive that makes me stand good in those places. So we can always look at it from a positive place as well. Sorry, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of agree with you more. So I'm actually going to bring on Philip. Philip, I haven't forgotten about you. So, Philip, I'm unmuting your line. And, Philip, you are on the line with Jody. Do you have any questions or comments for her? Um, did you need volunteer work? Do I need volunteer work for? Do you do any volunteer work? Oh, do I do volunteer work? Yes, I absolutely do. Any any time that I can. I also um, I blog six days a week. Um, I do all kinds of things to give back. I work for CASA here in Montana, and I have several uh, cases that I do. I, I have a legal background, so that's kind of right in my wheelhouse. 
So I love to go in and work with the families, the moms, the children who many times are in situations that I came through. And so to me, that, that, that's actually the wind beneath my wings is giving back. That's the wind beneath your wings? It is the wind, yeah. Yes, is that right? Did I say it wrong? <laughs> I think you said it right. You said it right. It gives right. me great strength to, to volunteer and give back. And I try to do it as, as many places as I can. You you often can't find me even going out to dinner that I'm not helping somebody in the community next to me because it just gives me great joy to do that. Amen. Great question, Philip. Thank you. Do you have any other questions for Jody, or should I come back to you next time? I don't have any more questions right now. Okay, great. Well, thanks for being on, and I'll put you back in the listen-only mode. So we have another um, caller on the line, and I'm not going to disclose your entire phone number, but we have a number um, ending in the last four digits, um, 7650. So I'm going to unmute your line, um, 7650, and I'm wondering if you have any questions or comments for Jody. You are on the air. This is actually Jody's husband, Jeff, and I'm just listening in, um, supporting my wife. Oh, a sweet husband. Oh, well, thank, thank you. Thank you. you. Okay, well, you get a gold star for being for a most supportive husband, Jeff, and I um, <laughs> appreciate Appreciate your support. Well, thank you. She's she's a very strong lady, and it's it's been a long road for her, I know. And so, you know, we do what we can do to support her when she needs it, and she's come a long way. So hopefully, it'll get her to the point where she can get this lady back to her family, you know, with help from other people. And I mean that's. That's the major goal. Um, that is the work of an angel right there. Correct. Well, you seem like a pretty nice guy, and and Jody is an incredible, incredible person. Um, I've only known her for about an hour on the air, but she's a complete and total rock star, but... You seem like a nice enough guy that I bet um, one day you'll actually be worthy of her. So thank you for calling in. (laughs) Sure. You're welcome. (laughs) Jeff, I'll put you back in the listen-only mode. And um, so, Jody, um, I wanted to ask you, so you had mentioned, you know, kind of going back and and you you described your family of origin and you did mention a sister that had, um, sort of, you know, teamed up with your mother and worked against you um, in this um, um, work that you're doing and in, in finding the truth about the murder um, and, and your father's um, involvement in it. And my question is, are you in touch with any of your other siblings? I know you mentioned you had a younger brother um, and, and um, have any of them done the work and what is their position um, within the family of origin and, and the work that you've been doing um, in breaking the cycle? Or uh, yeah. do you mind if I... No, I'm absolutely fine with that. Unfortunately, 
in families like this, you either get back on the mobile and you spend around with them in dysfunction or you have to walk away. And so um, my brother and I were close for years and years and years, but he also um, was an abuser and raped me in my teen years and that sort of thing. And so it just becomes in these situations where to hang out with toxic people, you know, you just get (laughs) toxic all over you. And so um, I tried to stay close with my family for years and it just didn't work. I mean, outgrowing them is probably a great word. And they also just stay quite alive and active against uh, this whole thing. As an example, my mother just sold the 40 40 acres that um, the body was put on. And before she did that, she gifted just this boundary line exception of where the dump was to my sister. And then my sister denied me access to go in and excavate. I would do it at my own Mm -hmm. cost. So they're not only just, they're not sideline people. They want me to be quiet. Like Redmond told me years ago, they don't hate you, Jody. They just want you to shut up. And so I think a lot of us, if we remember um, the pain that it takes to find the strength that you hear in my voice, a lot of people don't want to go through that pain to get the strength on the other side. And so I do get, um, it was kind of like when we, when we all talked about this as a family 25 years ago or whatever it was now, um, probably longer. Yeah, my girls are 34 and 38 and they were just really babies. So probably 30 years ago. And we walked in and my brother we all talked about the abuse collectively, but when we got there, the only story that he could talk to my dad about was meeting this woman down the road. They just didn't, it's too, it's so hard to sit. And uh, I think that there was so much abuse between me and my father and the murder really was when I write those words about the murder being that force that moved me on, that's really true. And I'm thankful for it. I mean, I would have rather gone my whole life without it. Let's just say that first. But then the other piece to it is it was just the part that I couldn't be still around. I just couldn't. There was none of us hardly ever, which one of us probably that ever listened to this or have told our stories have ever received justice for it? Hardly ever, right? Like these, these crimes are crimes that go unsolved. I mean, they just... The society doesn't want to hear about them, particularly when it's incest. And no courts really want to go forward on it because guess what? There's no evidence. You you can you could be the witness, but your witness doesn't count. And so, uh, you know, families just blow apart. And usually, so all all four of us siblings remember things, but then after about five years' time, two siblings completely recanted and went with my dad's thing about Satan had just planted these lies in their mind. It was incredibly mm-hmm. sad. So that's a long way of saying that families, unfortunately, you, you, you fight on one side or the other. There's really no gray area in these families. And if you try that, it's devastating. It's, you're going to go away with pain all the time. I tried it for a while. <laughs> Not a very good way to live. Why it is, you know, if you, to those of you that, that you know, are, hopeful that if you come forward with your truth about, you know, the abuse in your family of origin um, and are hopeful that, you know, others will join in, you know, sometimes it happens and a lot of times it doesn't. And your family, do not wait for your family to validate your story, you know, because that may never happen, you know, right? It's so true. I, I see so many people just stay completely, you know, like that, 
my book is called A Prisoner by No Crime of My Own. I saw that in my mind's eye years ago, and it was my own journey. I feel like God said, you are in a prison of a crime that you didn't commit. And what happens so much of the time, I think, is we just constantly and continually look at the people who abused us, right? And instead of looking at ourselves and our own need, we're always going back to them. Will you love me? Will you confess? Like one mm-hmm. of you said, they are the ones who know the truth, and yet they're the ones who withhold it. And so our focus stays on them almost to the point where it's, it's detrimental to our own being. So mm-hmm. I always tell people, you see you. Put your eyes back on yourself, and by doing that, then it does unleash you and unburden you from, from your people and your past. And, and it's a terrible way to say it, right, because we all want family. It's, it's a terrible mm-hmm. thing to have to say, but it's the truth, unfortunately. Exactly. And, and, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think that's the reparenting. We have to parent, you know, ourselves, you know, those, those small children, those, you know, three-year-old child that was subjected to the most heinous of crimes. Um, we need to, re, you know, we become their parents in that healing process. Um, and we stand alone a lot of the time. Um, but I always remind myself, I've got the best parent ever. I can do anything. Um, that's what you have to become, right? Well, it really is. And when I heard one of you talk about self-care, you know, one of the biggest things that I do, I hear all kinds of things about self-care. And I have, I, you know, I bought a beautiful sauna for myself that I do self-care in all the time. And we have beautiful mountains. And my husband and I play cards. All of those things matter deeply to me. But one of the biggest things that, I adore is being able to treat that all of those parts inside of me that never got looked at, being able to treat her with whatever she needs or wants. And Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful, to me, that's the best self-care that I can do. Even if it's a bubble bath two times a day, I loved bubble baths when I was little. And to have it now, I don't know, just that to me, self-care is loving those pieces and parts of me that I never got, that never got love, that never even got attention Mm -hmm. or anything. That that's my favorite part of self care. Yeah, exactly. Well, when you're when you're born into an abusive home, your childhood is ripped away, and you don't have one. Um, and it is it we do give it back to ourselves piece by piece. Um, and so I love the way that you mentioned self care as a part of that. I never thought that way, but I, I agree with you. Um, the journey to self-love is, you know, and self-care is, I think, part of the healing process for sure. Right. Well, because so, so many times talk- when we, we – oh, go ahead. No, no, you go on. Please. Well, I was just going to say, to me, the reason why that's just part and parcel with it is when you're treated terribly, what do we allow and what are we used to being treated terribly? Letting people treat us terribly, letting grocery clerks treat us terribly, letting employers treat us terribly. So to me, the flip side of that, we always talk about self-harm, right? And so self-care then is that loving part and that loving nature that we bring back to ourselves. That, that's all I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, it's really all pretty good self-harm. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's a paradigm shift. And it's not an easy one to, yes. to make, at least in my, right. you know, from my experience um for just for me there was some guilt that went along with that too i feel i do i deserve it how do you get over yeah. that um 
So I did want to ask you about your book. Um, and so a, prison, a Prisoner by No Crime of My Own. And can you tell us a little bit about that book um, and, and, uh, and where we can find it? Okay. Um, well, that book has taken me 30 years or more to write. My daughter is 34 now, and when she was an infant, laying in bed with me, and my mother had come to my house because she had left my dad, and all this craziness was happening. I was with a bad guy, and I was laying there, and just, you know, when you lay there with your, your eyes closed, you can see the ocean, you can see all kinds of things. I saw this book, and I saw this lady in a uniform-issued prison uniform, and she was on a concrete floor with just the light coming through a window, and I saw the name of the book. And it, and, it, and it drove me on. I mean, I have a really deep, serious faith that um, I am not religious at all, but I have a really strong faith, and I really followed that as a guiding light to help me out. And one of the most beautiful things about that is because it's taking me 30 years to write, it really has this journey of what healing looks like. People say it all the time. I had a, a girlfriend read it, and she said to me, Jody, I never knew what it looked like to heal until I read your book. Because I go through, it's, all, it's years and years of what does that look like? You know what I mean? And the self-loathing, the, the self-regret, the I don't trust myself, the, you know, all of it. Um, the, the personal journal, journaling around codependency. And people, I got a text the other day um, from another man who read the book, and he said, I can't believe you had love for your dad. You know, it's, a, it's complicated. Incest is a very complicated thing. And usually, though, almost anybody who's gone through CSA of any kind knows the abuser and usually has a fond feeling for their abuser at some yeah. point before it's destroyed. So, you know, to me, um, it's been really enlightening for other people to read it. The second part of that book is I did meet this lady who lost her life that day. When my father died, right, I went to see him, and we spent six hours together. I hadn't seen him much in my adult life. And I told him that I had felt guilt for walking out of that room alive when she didn't. And he looked at me, and very quietly and pensively and with full real concern, which I never saw my father give, said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And so to know that there is this woman who just got thrown into a dump and buried with garbage for 50 years, I need her story to stay alive. It's something that that's self-care to me. I know that people don't understand it and they want you to leave the story in the past and they want you to leave these burdens behind. To me, it's a burden to leave her behind. I have to keep her with me because I just do. And I can't explain how these kinds of things happen, but the book also, I can never know who it is until we bring her up. I hope to write a second book where we've brought her up and I get to tell you guys what it looks like <laughs> to finish mm. that journey. And I don't know if that'll happen, although, you know, it's never done. I did get the chief of police last year to say he'd look at the case again. I've got, you know, some other things that I'm working on because I am the witness. And, you know, the strongest part of what I do I, six days a week, what I try to do is have people remember that to believe yourself, believe in your story. Whether somebody believes you or not, you're telling the truth. And that is yeah. such a, a huge piece to it, right? Um, every time any abuser comes back into your life and says anything, immediately you're like, oh, am I going to be believed? Am I telling the truth? What part isn't accurate? 
So for me, the book is all about that. It's validation. Um, it's keeping her story alive. And it's also, I always say, I want to show you what the inside of my cell looks like to teach you how to walk out of yours. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Incredible. Wait, before I ask so we can get your book, as you know, NASA is an international organization, and we literally have someone that just called in on the panel that is living um, in the time of Tuesday, about 10 or 11 a.m., um, Bob from Australia. I'm going to actually unmute his line. So we have a caller calling in from Australia. It is Tuesday over there. And I, I think I can recognize the number. It's Bob. So, Bob, I'm going to unmute your line. And is this Bob Eden? Do I have my Do I have my numbers right? Your numbers are absolutely perfect, darling. Yes. And it's um, <laughs> 11 a.m. here in Paradise on Tuesday. Yeah. That's right. Okay, 11. I was off a bit. Well, good good day, Bob. And I have you online with Jody. Our oh, great. Guest. Great. Well, looking forward to um, interacting with you and Jody. Yeah. Because I believe that as we're all sovereign, unique, and equal, everybody holds a piece of the puzzle. And it's simply by sharing our stories, which are inviolate because they are personal truth, then uh, by sharing our stories, we help to heal each other. And for me, really, Healing society is that simple. It comes from common people speaking from their heart and sharing their stories and vulnerability. So, um, yeah, and from what I've heard so far, Jody's doing that, so it's beautiful. Yeah, she, she truly is. Do you have any questions for her? Because she's on the line right now. I'm, I haven't heard enough of her dialogue, but... Um, all I can say is that when I look at Western society, um, I cannot imagine any child having grown up in Western society that has had all their emotional developmental needs met. So basically, um, we're all victims of victims and it's multi-generational. And for me, the only way to heal is to take responsibility for your life and don't ignore the past because, you know, a dysfunctional past is a burden that you carry on on your soul. So what I did was I knew I couldn't change my past, but I went back and healed my past. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the biggest task for anybody is just to take complete ownership and responsibility for the life that they are creating because... If you are not creating your life, who is? Hey. <laughs> oh, shut up now. <laughs> Thanks, darling. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk later. Well, very true. Well, thank you for calling in, Bob. And I will uh, put your um, line back in the listen-only mode, but I will let you know that as you listen to Jody, you will realize that this is someone who is completely taking control of her of her childhood and her experiences and um, um, she didn't make the mess, but she certainly is cleaning it up. So um, I have utmost respect for her. So Jody, um, before we move on, I 
I don't know if there's anything else about your story that you wanted to share um, with us um, this evening, but I'm, I'm tempted to, to let the remainder of our, our panel interact with you just one more time um, before we sign off on the show. We've, we've got 25 minutes left, but they're going to go really fast. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that. I, I don't have anything to add at this point. I love when people interact, so I'm fine with that. Okay, great. Well, thank you. So, Kim, I'm just going to open up the line or back to you, or throw it back to you and see if you have any other questions or comments for Jody. I don't at this time. No, I'm, I'm interested in get your book and learn more about it, and I'll definitely be keeping you in my prayers and for your journey to find the home of that, that young lady. Yeah, that's sad. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you, Kim. Yes. I have a feeling that sequel to your book, Jody, is going to be coming around. I, I have no doubt that um, that you're going to persevere and that you're going to bring justice um, to this woman and her family um, because you're just so tenacious. Um, and knowing that you've been, you know, in the legal community for so long, I think you've got some expertise there that that I certainly would not have. Um, between that and your tenacity, um, you know, I'm 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 staying closely tuned to your story. I'll tell you that much. That's awesome. Thank you. I, you know, I keep that hope alive. One of the things as survivors is hope, right? And and I do think that hope deferred makes the heart sick, like the Bible talks about. But it's so true that I remember being in my early 20s when I read that and. Hope is is very much um, a driving force in my life. You know, when when you run out of hope, it, it's not a very pleasant future. And the other thing I guess that I would share that I think is really important for all of us that have lived through these traumatic stories, and there's millions of us really, is that the longer that you stand, the more the other children and and the people in your families and that sort of thing. Sometimes people want to come out and, and I've, I've learned that watching my own family of origin that I, that I came through, um, I, I have sometimes like a nephew just reached out to me and shared about some own stuff and giving them the courage or kind of holding up a stop sign that says, turn left here. <laughs> Don't keep going down this path. So, you know, to me, there's always positive things that even if nobody follows you and you lose everybody, we still have to do it. But sometimes when you stand long enough, people do start coming out of the woodworks and saying, you know, I never said anything 15 years ago, but here's my story. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to encourage people that I do believe that our voices help, and I do believe that our strength and tenacity helps encourage the next generation in the true way and the way that you really find courage and strength. Exactly. And don't you find that when you you get those little snippets, you know, here and there of, of hearing someone, you know, have the courage to, to speak of something um, that they hadn't spoken of yet before um, or someone that reaches out to you because because of the fact that, you know, you've shown courage and opened up the dialogue, that that just propels you forward, you know, gives you the strength and the energy to keep going yourself. Because I have, I have found that. 
Yep, it really does help. Yeah. And, and like the gentleman that said, do I volunteer? To me, you know, volunteering, it doesn't make sense of it all. There is no sense to be made of pain and trauma. I mean, it's just bad things that happen. And, and I really do agree uh, with the gentleman from Australia that said, you know, it's generational trauma. It's generational doom. And, you know, uh, I, I think that we're doing a better job than certainly our grandparents or parents ever did of telling stories. They, they were of the mind that, you know, out of sight, out of mind, people didn't talk. But fortunately, I happen to have a grandmother that I write about quite a bit, and she seemed to be my angel in the corner. She did tell stories. She drank too much gin, and I'm glad she did because those were the times that I heard all these things. And there's always a few ways you can look at it. She was the most loving person in my life, and she did tell stories, and she did give me strength. And so um, we can keep that alive, you know, by telling our stories. I think there's, mm-hmm. there's a huge part about that. And not just four stories that somebody created that fits a nice little profile of the life that they want to bring forward. <laughs> right. Exactly. Which is really easy to do when you have the time to, you know. <laughs> um, right. And you, you notice crap, that you crap. hear people tell the same. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Is that what I'm agreeing with? With exactly what you're saying. I mean, Facebook and Instagram allow us to, to to paint, you know, the perfect picture and the perfect story. You know, um, we can decide who we want to be. We can decide how we're going to brand ourselves. Um, you know, we can camouflage a lot if we want to. Right. And then the flip side of that, too, is that everybody gets on these trauma wagons. And I have to say, I, I'm i not easily offended by any means at all, but I'm always taken aback by everything's PTSD now. I want to say, when you see a woman walking out of the woods because you saw her walking down the hall right before she was killed, that's PTSD. <laughs> when you just got fender bender, that is not PTSD. So there is some part of this healing mantra that is not helpful for anybody, I think. And and I don't really right. know how to say that a lot, but it's, you know, um, it doesn't do any good for people who have really had to live through the legacy of true trauma. Exactly. And it shouldn't be minimized. And I think it's the minimization that it's hard. That's a great, that's a great word for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, if you've lived in the trenches, um, it's it's having having those experiences and the symptoms um, that come from um, those experiences um, is not something to take lightly, and quite frankly, not something that is easy to advertise either. Um, that's my opinion. Um, Right. And, you know, with that, one of the things that I really had to work through as well is that some people genuinely have life experiences and I would look at them and think, how come you're not doing okay? You barely had anything. And I really had to take that judgment out of my heart from being from such trauma because it was more of a jealousy and I learned that I needed to pluck that out and say, this genuinely, this person's not making it in life. And we see people who don't make it 
for circumstances that I would think, my God, that would have been a good life for me. And I don't mean that in the sense of mockery. I mean it in the sense of I would have loved to have lived that life. And I realize mm-hmm. that no story, we cannot do parallel stories with anybody. Everybody's story is their own. And so I try to keep a great big grace period in my heart for people that really do have an experience that is not the same and um, what I would call tragic, I wouldn't call that tragic. Do you understand where I'm trying to go with that? And so yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Just, you can't compare, you can't compare stories really. But there are times when I see people who use their story constantly to say, I have been through all of this and I cannot make it. And very graciously, I will say to them, I want you to throw your cards down and tell me your story. And very few times mm-hmm. I've been trumped by anybody. And so there's a positive way that we can use our stories, too, no matter where we've come from, but always remaining full of understanding for another pe- person's journey. Yeah. That, you know, I used to say a hangnail puts them in the hospital. And I had to quit saying that because that wasn't fair either. <laughs> I'm not laughing. Uh, I'm not <laughs> laughing. At all, hang nails. I've never hang nails, but um, but yeah. And to your point, I think you know part of for me, you know, part of the um, empathy. You know, empathy is something that I've gained from you know my own life experience, and also the realization that you know because I had some repressed or delayed um, disclosure of, of instances in my in my life. You never really know someone's story. You just never really know anybody's story wholly unless someone wishes to tell you. Um, and so um, we just don't know. Um, and you can invite them to, to tell, but, um, but we never know what battles someone is fighting um, um, or camouflaging. Um, so um, I've, you know, I've learned true. to have that. I think we've all learned to have some empathy as well. Um, just from the life experience that we've had. So, Philip, actually, I'm going to unmute your line and invite you back into the conversation to see if you have any more questions or comments for Jody. So, Philip, you're on. Um, I was just having a thought about sometimes, like, if you grew up in an abusive home, you have to work. You have to work at it to earn certain things that other people have had that didn't grow up in the decent home. And so I was just wondering, like my sister said that she thinks that all people are created equal and that everybody deserves that. What do you guys think about that? Well, I'm well, curious I, I can... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious to see what Jody thinks about that. You know, what I want to say is um, my father had a saying in our house. He said, you have no rights, only privileges. So for, to me to answer that, and, and this would be an opinion sidebar, um, I grew up believing that I had no rights, only privileges. And so I know that I didn't come out and hit this world equal to what most people believe. I'm, I am always taken aback by how much my husband's father gave him the courage to know his rights, and he stands up for those rights, and he taught me so much about that because genuinely what, you're only as good as your information in life. And so I don't think that we all can be 
created equal because we're part of where we came from and what we've been taught. And when you have rule makers that tell you who you are, those are very formative years. And so, no, I don't think that we were all created equal. Maybe we were created equal, but that doesn't do a whole lot of good because somebody taught us how to talk. Somebody taught us how to think. Somebody taught us how we were going to be treated. Somebody taught us about how we were supposed to accept how to be treated and on and on and on. So that's how I would answer that question. Um, It took me a long time and maybe I'm still not done with, I have no rights, only privileges. How did you, you said that you still have a problem thinking that you don't have any rights, only privileges? Yes, I did say that. I'm just saying that in a way metaphorically saying that some of those conditioned responses are very hard to get rid of. And so I know some people that are so good at their rights constantly. I mean, you know, they they know how to stand up for themselves all the time. And while I do now, in fact, I just had this for work. We went through this um, personality thing. I came out a super advocate, but I can tell you one thing. That is from years and years of retraining myself. And using a faith about teach, teaching myself who God created me to be talking about, we are all created the same. But that has been a concerted effort on my part to become an advocate for myself and for others. That is not something that I was taught. That's a great question, Philip. You know, I was, I was thinking that I, I have a sister and I have a brother. Um, and in my home, girls were not treated the same as boys. And um, so my sister and I had the same treatment, but she had the opinion that her rights were being violated. And I had the opinion that as women, we were born without rights. So, you know, what's the use of speaking up? Just hang your head low and do as you're told. So we had the same experience as children, but two different opinions. I don't know if that helps or not, but. I'm sorry, what did you say you weren't sure helped? I don't know if my explanation of, you know, my 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 experience was, but growing up, I had a sister, and she believed that we had rights that were being violated, and I believed that we were born without rights, so why speak up and try and fight for them? Um, and we both had this, had the same experience as children. So just very two very different positions. But you I think it's that advocating. Go ahead. Yeah, so she, so she was born advocating, and I was born thinking that we didn't even have a right to advocate, and we lived in the same environment. See, I was I just, grown up growing up by myself because I had two other siblings, but they were all sisters, and they shared a room. So they could advocate for each other, I guess. But I didn't have mm-hmm. anybody advocate for me. So you were alone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. But I think that Jody's, you know, showed a nice example of um, you can stand alone and be successful. And I really appreciate that about her story. Yeah, that that it is one thing to remember that we can we can learn. Read every I mean I read every book. I remember when my daughter who's now 38, she came to me when I was when she was probably 
14 or 15 and said, Mom, you have to read a book that's just for fun, not about how to love better or how to do life. But I had to because I was so broken and so messed up. I had to consume anything I could to change what I'd been taught. Driven. Driven for change. That's right. And to have the that beanstalk, I think I've right? Covered that too. Go ahead. Now, sounds like your daughter was also advocating for a little self care for you back then. I I don't know. That sounded like to me. That was right. <laughs> we actually belong together now. It's very cool and it's really healed our our lives. But that she was right, and because everything was so intense, you know. Coming out of trauma, you have to attack it intently and intensely. Both words are accurate to um, stay in the game of healing. It is not when people, people don't really understand how much work it was. When I would get an assignment from my counselor, he'd say, I need you to go home and write about this. I need you to go home and do this. I want you to write a letter to your mother. I want you to go see this person. I think it would be good for you to go see the accomplice that was in the room of the murder. You know, all those things, that those are not easy tasks. Sometimes when I was to see my dad, I'd have to stop and drink, have a few drinks because physically my body would shake because I was so terrified of him. I couldn't breathe. I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't physically do it without mm-hmm. stopping. And I can remember stopping and having a couple of Cadillac margaritas before I went in to see him. And I was stone sober because I just physiologically, I could not do it without that. I guess they have Xanax and stuff for that, but I, you know, I never, I've never taken any antidepressants or anything. So I just fought hard all the time. Well, I was just reading about internal family systems theory and basically they're rescuers and firefighters, you know, and sounds like your, your cocktail could have been a couple firefighters at the time, which I think it's, it's okay. From what I learned, that's okay. You know, you got to do what you got to do to survive. You do. You have to. You do have to do what you have to do. And and if if you guys, I'd love for you to to read my book one day. And one of the things I share about that is honoring the things that I had to do to survive. I overate as a child, and you know, I was size twenty when everybody was tiny and little, and you know, going through that. And then I drank too much, and you know, you could just go on and on and on. But I tend to honor those things because I'm still here and I'm still standing and I have my full faculties. I have a great family around me, a great life. But people tend to want to deny all those things and focus on those things. And I've never focused on the things that helped me get through. I just haven't. I just thank them that they were there. And you use a crutch when your leg's broken, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And so I do think that the whole, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go on. Go on, please. I was just going to say, I think, you know, church thematics and all of those things, healing groups and all of these things, we tend to focus on the problems or or the, the, the things that come out of our pain, right? And I always focus on the pain, not the the thing that came out of the pain. I did this as a result of my pain. I don't really want to focus on that because that's not going to fix me, but I need to focus on my pain. And I think it's one thing that somebody was, again, you know, a lot of people are talking to me about the book now, but I was out the other night and somebody 
came to me about that it, it was a young man who had been through a really horrible traumatic experience of suicide and he survived and we were talking about different things in life and what I said to him is it's the pain. What creates, where, wherever we go in life, to me, my pain was my driving force. And I needed to find a way to, to quelch that pain, to stop that pain, to heal that pain. And um, that, to me, was the journey. And so I never got upset or focused on the things that I was doing as a result of pain. And many of those things are now in my past. <laughs> and through perseverance. Yeah. Yes, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to have people around you. Again, it's that accountability. A lot of times victims, people that come through trauma want to be victims and victims don't like people around that hold you accountable. And you know what? My family has been very good. My children included saying, mom, you're drinking too much. Mom, you know, I mean, that accountability, we can cut it off or we can change. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Accountability is huge. Absolutely. And huge. Right. It is exactly what your caller from Australia said. We do have to take personal responsibility. I, I cannot change my past, but just like he did, I went back and I healed it and I made peace with it. And I brought it along with me because you know what? It's who I am. And like I always tell people, if, if you were to cut off your past, who would I, what would I have left? Of course, I know who I am, but everybody, you know, they tell us all these stories about my grandma made apple pie and my mom braided my hair and my dad took me on these hunting trips. And I mean, I hear them all the time. I don't have stories like that. So for me, if I cut off my childhood, what do I, what do I do? Cut off 25 years of my life or, you know, I left when I was 18, but I think you get the drift. It's not good to just cut off an arm and keep going. I don't, I don't think that we need to. And so instead of, I don't get to sit around the room when everybody starts telling t- stories like that. And I don't, I don't get to tell my story because nobody wants to listen to it. And I've accepted that. I don't know that, that it's exactly fair. I try to bring forward the stories that I can. But anybody that knows my story, you know what, they don't want to hear a story about my dad making popcorn or that he was funny because he was just an incestuous raping murderer. But to me, I could tell these other parts. And so when you bring it together, I remember a counselor, that my great counselor said to me, Jody, you live life in the black and whites, and guess what? A lot of it is lived in the grays. And he said, if Mother Teresa was 90% good, she was 10% bad. And she said, if your father was 90% bad, he was 10% good. There's something about that that alleviates the need for full destruction of another human being. And you just go on and say, you know what, maybe that 10% I could carry so that I have some stories to tell. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, that, that resonates with me, as I always say about my own, you know, father who passed away. I have some, some good memories and I have a lot of bad memories and I can live a more peaceful life now that he's gone. And that's the truth. Oh, that's that is so true. My father is gone now, too, and it, it does make it easier. Father's Day comes and goes, and I don't think about it. <laughs> I wonder nope. what my husband, what we should do for him. You know, but other than that, I don't think about it. Well, you, cel- you celebrate the, the, good, the good parts of fathers and the good fathers. And there's a lot. Exactly. In your life, it sounds like there's a lot to celebrate. There is indeed. That is a really true way to say it. And that's an amazing thing. Uh, Redmond always told me, Jody, you should not be the person you are. You just shouldn't be. 
So for me, it took a lot of hard work to get here and a great big strong faith and a God that loves me very much. Well, amen to that. Wow, what an incredible show it's been. And I just can't thank you enough, Jody, for coming on and sharing your experience, your story, your book, A Prisoner by No Crime of My Own, with us. Um, your, your testimony is going to continue to help so many people. Um, and on behalf of NASA, I, I just wish to thank you so much. For coming You're on welcome, and I just want to thank you guys for all the work you do as well. It takes all of us, right, to to make change, and I just thank so much that I, I think that you have this platform that we're on, and so I, I just want to thank you back as well. And I hope to oh. be on when we hopefully complete this and have the second version. <laughs> and if you not, are I'm absolutely. still going to be happy. So, <laughs> You're absolutely, so maybe we can get to conclusion. We cannot wait. We cannot wait. All right, awesome. I will keep. I will keep you guys posted. Uh, I also wish to thank um, my beautiful co-host um, Kim Lakin. Thank you, Kim, for being on this evening. Thank you to Philip for calling in, for Bob Eden from calling in from Australia. Um, it is where it is Tuesday. That always just trips me out. Um, thank you to Jeff um, for calling in as well and supporting the lovely Jody, and um, as I always say, as I start off on um, these shows, we uh, have enough adult eyes and ears on this planet to keep every single one of our children safe. If you see something, if you hear something, please say something, do something. It's our more responsibility to protect our children. Thank you, and good night, everybody. Love Talk Radio.